Today we continue with our second installment in our sermon series titled, How Essential is Church? In this series, we are studying and reflecting on three letters in the Bible known as 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. These letters were written to church leaders in Ephesus and Crete in the late 1st century or early 2nd century to ensure the faith and faithfulness of the churches in each place. Today's scripture readings come from 2 Timothy and Titus and are urging the church leaders to hold on to a treasured teaching of the church, the knowledge that we are justified by God's grace made known in Jesus Christ and not by our works. Let us listen now to our readings. Our first scripture reading comes from the letter to Titus. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This Spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. I desire that you insist on these things, so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. Our second reading comes from the second letter to Timothy. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Here ends the reading of the epistles. Amen. For my first two years as a pastor, I served as a solo interim pastor in a small church. The church building had a leak over Thanksgiving break when the church was empty and the leak flooded the main hall, the fellowship room, 
the church office, and the Sunday school classrooms. We soon discovered that to properly restore everything after the leak, we had to remove and repair parts of walls, flooring, all the restroom fixtures in both restrooms, and to remediate for asbestos. Then, after the work had begun and all the restroom fixtures were removed, we had a contractor go bankrupt and disappear on us with some of the insurance money, leaving us with no restrooms in the building. And in the middle of all this, we had the tubs fire. Everybody did their best to cope and the session pulled together and for the most part, the church kept their spirits up, but it was rough going for a while. And as a new pastor, I had a lot to learn about the basics of, well, everything. Preaching, teaching, and worship leading, of course, which I had prepared for in seminary but also all the stuff that they don't teach in seminary that you'll have to learn on the job. Things like how to get along with people as a leader, especially under pressure. And in our case, I also learned about contractors and insurance and picking out flooring on a small budget. Where was my class on how to find flooring that can hold up to foot traffic, look nice, and not cost too much too? Like I said, some things you can only learn on the job. I am grateful for all the lessons I learned, but there were some times when I really wanted to just give up. Finally, in one of my stressed out conversations with our executive presbyter, Bob, our regional leader, for those of you who aren't familiar with our Presbyterian jargon in our Presbyterian system, I said to Bob, I think I just need a coach, you know, like a ministry coach to help me through all this stuff. And he said, oh, well, if that's what you need, I can do that. But I have a couple of things I need you to agree to do. First, you have to be yourself. And second, you have to tell me the truth about what's going on. By this, he meant that I had to really share with him what wasn't working and where I was struggling and not just put on a brave face and pretend that I had everything handled. And so we started meeting over coffee and he would coach me through whatever challenges were happening. And it really helped to have an experienced pastor and ministry leader mentor me. I was reminded of this situation when I was reading over our scripture passages for this week because they are from letters written by an experienced church leader to a less experienced one. Together with 1 Timothy, we call these three letters the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters because they are concerned with equipping their recipients for pastoral ministry by giving instructions governing a about governing a church and dealing with conflict and also about passing on wisdom accumulated through living a life of mission, ministry, and serving the gospel. You could look at them as a kind of mentorship put down on the page in epistle form. As Dale said last week, church tradition tells us that these letters were written by Paul to his co-workers and envoys, Timothy and Titus, who had responsibility for the church at large. Timothy was known as Paul's spiritual heir, and Titus, a Gentile or non-Jewish person, accompanied Paul to the conference in Jerusalem and later was crucial to the ministry in Corinth. Tradition tells us that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus to guide them in their ministry and help them establish structure in their churches. However, 
A majority of contemporary scholars agree that the pastoral epistles were not written by the historical Paul. There are seven letters that are considered to be definitely written by the historical Paul, three that are maybe Paul. Then there are these three epistles that are written using Paul's name and biographical details from his life, which was a style of writing that was common, relatively common in the ancient world. And these letters, known as the pastorals, are understood to be supplementary to the letters already circulating under the name of Paul and probably written in Ephesus around 100 CE, Common Era, after Paul's death. Still, others are, other scholars argue that the pastoral letters should not be lumped together, but judged separately that some might have fragments of material written by Paul, or that the authorship of all letters attributed to Paul requires a nuanced understanding because Paul used secretaries to write them and served on a cooperative missionary team. So it's hard to tease out what words belong to Paul alone. What we do know is that 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus differ from other letters of Paul in theology, statements about sin, statements about the law, and faith. They are also quite different in their teachings about people, especially women and enslaved persons. We will talk about that topic later in the month, but I bring it up now because it is why I think it's important to have a well-rounded understanding of the authorship of these letters. Because they have teachings that have been used in ways counter to our understanding of the gospel message to oppress women and people of color for centuries, a lot of modern readers avoid them, even though they are foundational to the church as we know it. We will return again to this topic in a few weeks, but for now, we'll remember that the pastoral letters were written for a different time and reflect the contemporary life and ethics of the world around them. Okay, so these epistles are central to our scriptural canon, and we should understand them as foundational documents for the church as we know it. Despite some dissonance, at their heart, the letters lift up the love of God for all humanity, a love that is for the help and healing of all, and are about God's manifestation in Jesus Christ as a savior of humanity, the savior of humanity, and the revelation of what it means to be truly human. One of the major themes in the letters is a warning against false teachers as a threat to the church. It seems that from within the early church, some people started saying that they had a special knowledge, or in Greek, Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, to teach, special knowledge or gnosis to teach. Possibly they were teaching that the world is a place of imprisonment and that you needed to withdraw from it and learn a doctrine of special knowledge of God in order to be redeemed and liberated. In Gnostic teaching, creation and the creator God were evaluated negatively and overcoming the hostile world in order to be redeemed or liberated was a goal of the doctrine. This teaching may be one reason why the letters press so hard on Timothy and Titus, saying things like, 
Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you. The good treasure is the right teaching of the church as opposed to the Gnostic teachings. The doctrine of the church upholds that the world was created good by our good creator and that the knowledge of God in Christ is a gift of grace given freely to everyone. Both 2 Timothy and Titus say that the church must safeguard this important teaching, that it is God alone who saves us by grace through faith. This teaching does come from the historical Paul, who says in his undisputed letter to the Romans, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Similarly, the letter to Titus says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the water of rebirth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. And Second Timothy says, Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In theological terms, we call this theological teaching justification by grace, and it's still the central teaching of our church today. Well, how can we say it in plain language? One way we can think of it is that though we are all imperfect people who behave poorly and hurt others sometimes and sin or miss the mark in our relationship with God, God made us, or God made and continues to make things right with us through the saving ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who gave himself freely out of love. Justification, or being made right, by faith means that we have faith that Jesus has made us right with God through no power of our own. This is the teaching that the pastoral letters urge the early church to safeguard, that Jesus gave himself up freely out of love is true grace. We don't earn it with good works or by being good people and don't deserve it. Grace comes unconditionally because of who God is and because God loves us. 
I think it's pretty amazing that these letters fulfilled their purpose to help safeguard the teaching, and we are able to read them almost 2,000 years later. I started out today sharing a bit about how an experienced church mentor made a huge difference for me and how he asked me to be really honest with him about where I was struggling, which felt really vulnerable. I had to trust that he wouldn't judge my worth as a pastor by the challenges within the church, and he responded to that trust with grace and guidance. While Bob and I could sit face to face over a cup of coffee, and you and I are communicating through cyberspace, I think it's pretty cool that we are continuing a tradition of mentorship and church development that you can trace down through the ages, all the way back to Paul. All of us working in and for the church to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. This sermon series is looking at the pastoral letters through the lens of the question, how essential is church? The church, just like any human endeavor, is an imperfect vessel at best. Yet, one essential function of the church then and now is to safeguard a unique teaching. The saying is sure, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. This is good news. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And when so much is uncertain, one thing has been on my mind lately as our historical stay-at-home order continues, is how much we judge our worth and other people's worth by our external circumstances. For example, in our culture, it's becoming clear that we value high economic productivity, so much so that a person's worth is often measured by how much money they make, how much they can contribute to a company's success, or how hard they work. When everything from access to health care to being able to maintain safe shelter is determined by a person's ability to devote themselves to and participate in the workforce, then it starts to seem like it's our own hard work that justifies and saves us. I find it a great relief to know that no matter my circumstances or the circumstances of the people around me, that Jesus came and gave his life for us not because we're super productive, especially righteous, or very good people, but because God loves us. The knowledge safeguarded by the church that we are saved by grace is not secret knowledge that requires escape from the world, as the false teachers in Timothy and Titus's time were saying, but it is life-giving knowledge that demands engagement with the world. The letter to Titus goes on to say, I desire that you insist on these things so that who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. As we continue our series next week, Dale will talk in depth about how we respond to God's grace with good works, not to earn our salvation, but in gratitude to God. For the grace made known to us in Jesus Christ. For now, may you rest in the knowledge 
that God's goodness and mercy is for you. God's grace made known in Christ is given to you, not because you've earned it, but because God loves you unconditionally. Thanks be to God. Amen.